1: Our show is all about the exciting world of real estate and, in particular, how it relates to the lucrative New York market. But if you're not planning a real estate transaction in New York, we still have plenty of information that you can use no matter where you are. Now, here's your host, Vince Rocco.
2: Good morning, everybody. It is Tuesday, September 16th, and you are listening to Good Morning New York here on the Voice America Radio Network. I am your host, Vince Rocco. Thank you so much for being with us again today. So... Did you know that it takes a village to buy real estate in New York City? Yeah, a village. We're going to get into that. It's kind of funny, actually. But there are a cast of characters involved in every aspect of a transaction from the time you hire an agent to see property until you close that sale at the closing table. We're going to identify those key players in every real estate deal in New York City a little bit later. There has been a controversial issue brewing in the New York City luxury condo developments lately. It is called the poor door contradiction. This has to do with two separate main entrance doorways to the same building, one for the luxury buyer and one for the affordable housing resident. We will talk about both of these topics with our panel a little later in the program. But first, my special guest star today is Jim Greikar. He is president of Halstead Property, a firm that spans three states and 30 offices Jim takes an active role in the business direction of each of these offices. He is a dynamic leader and seasoned executive with a charismatic spirit and engaging manner. Jim is also called upon, as, also often called upon, as an industry expert by news organizations such as the New York Times, CNBC, the Wall Street Journal, the Financial Times, and the AP. He is a frequent lecturer on a wide range of critical topics impacting the real estate industry, including ethics, market conditions, and professional development. We're going to talk to Jim in just a minute, but first, a few newsworthy items. A new season may have arrived, but that doesn't mean things are about to cool down. From 57th Street to City Island in the Bronx, the real estate market is still booming, with 44 new developments preparing to unleash hundreds of new homes, both condos and rentals, onto the marketplace. Thirteen years after the September 11th terrorist attacks, One World Trade Center, the crown jewel of the ongoing redevelopment downtown, is finally set to open this fall. And big news on the celebrity uh, side. Super couple and uh, serial real estate shopper Sarah Jessica Parker and Matthew Broderick are on the house hunt once again. The actors just relisted their Greenwich Village townhouse at 20 East 10th Street for $22 million. Supposedly, the couple has never actually lived in the house, but they renovated it anyway – They actually live on Charles Street in the village where they have been for years. And although I'm a New York real estate person for a long time, I have never thought I would see this. At a new luxury condo development, 32 Crosby Street, parking spaces. That's right, parking spaces, which will be as big as 200 square feet, will be selling for $1 million. So anyway, with that, Jim Greikar, welcome to Good Morning New York and thank you for being here in the studio with me today. Great to see you.
3: Good morning, Vince.
2: Thanks for having me. So $1 million parking space, what do you make of that?
3: You know, I think value is relative based on how much money you have to spend. Uh, certainly that can be said of any product. Um, and there there are many people who would find a, a $1,000 sweater, for instance, outrageous. Um, I don't think it's a trend. I don't think that we'll be selling many parking spaces at a million dollars. But uh, you know, we clearly have an ultra-luxury market that's active right now in the city, and those buyers who are spending tens of millions of dollars want ultra-luxury amenities, and they're willing to pay for them. So I can't say I was terribly surprised by it.
2: Hey, I, nor, nor was I. But you know, the perception, because somebody – I put something on Facebook about it the other day, and somebody from – the Midwest that I 'm friends with actually called me on the phone versus <laughs> responding via the Facebook post and said, "Come on, Vince, are you kidding me one I, I get that there are one bedrooms and studios that you know range anywhere from five six hundred to a million dollars, but a parking space, and I said, "Well, you know, yeah." And, and, and gave him pretty much the same answer as, as you just did. So where you know, where are we today in this luxury marketplace of uh, New York City, most especially in Manhattan place? I mean we've, we've seen lots of changes I think this year in 2014. But where are we right now in this market? Well,
3: first I think it's important to point out that there's not one luxury market. And what we've seen mm-hmm. recently and what you read a lot about in the press is this ultra-luxury market of apartments uh, being listed and uh, going into contract it. Tens of millions of dollars. So again, value is relative to the amount of money you have to spend. So I would define the luxury market as above $5 million and the hyper-luxury market above $25 million. Obviously, what we read a lot about in the press is that ultra-luxury market. Um, but, and and there is a perception that that has cooled a little bit. But of course, when you're looking at a sample of so few apartments available to so few buyers – even the slightest alteration in activity can really alter that. I would say the market between 5 and 25 is rather healthy, and um, and that's a market that um, obviously more people fall into, but still it's a very narrow market for high earners and people with large high net worths. I tend to be interested in luxury and ultra-luxury from an anecdotal stand of, uh, standpoint in the sense that I think it informs the sort of more... Your more average buyer, your your buyer who's looking to find a place to live and be happy and make memories.
2: Let's talk about a little bit about absorption rate. And according to the Halstead's uh, absorption report, and just for the listening audience, you know, the absorption rate is really how many months it would take to sell all active listin- listings in a given marketplace and typically typically between 6 and 9 months is about the average mm-hmm. but today you know according to your report in Manhattan the rate fell down to 3.9 months from 4.2 so where it, why you know what in terms of inventory is it in terms of the, the lack of inventory or is it in terms of you know so many people just out there scrambling to pick up whatever what is actually causing that drop which is good a couple of things. First, to point out what absorption rate means as you
3: defined it, it's a metric that is used in real estate, uh, engaging real estate markets all across the country. It's not a metric that has been used traditionally in Manhattan. At Halstead, we commission an absorption report quarterly. We use those numbers. We find, them, we find them interesting and instructive. And like all aspects of the New York City real estate market, there really isn't, <clears throat> pardon me, one absorption rate. For instance, on the Upper West Side of Manhattan, where inventory is incredibly tight, I would argue it's less than 3.9 months. In a neighborhood, uh, for instance, the Upper East Side, where there's more product available, it may well be a bit more than 3.9 months. But I think it's important to point out that the absorption rate in Manhattan is generally going to be low because we're a low inventory market. And if you look at the the absorption uh, rates, pardon me, in other markets after, uh, after the, the Great Recession, you were seeing absorption rates of thirty, forty, fifty months in some markets, uh, absolutely really speaking to just the <clears throat> just the huge glut of inventory on the market. We never have that issue in Manhattan or we rarely have that issue in Manhattan because we simply don 't have the space to build that kind of inventory that sits around in a recession
2: so you know with all of that said, and, and people ask me this every day I'm still being active in the real estate market aside from all the other you know managerial stuff that I get involved in at my company but in your opinion, are we headed for any major changes? I mean, we've we've struggled all of this year, most of 2014 with a severe lack of inventory. You know, pricing has, you know, continued to stay probably flat or or up in in some cases neighborhoods whatever. But do you feel, you know, from what you see from your agents at your company that there is a major change, a bubble, I hate to use that word, but people have been, you know, talking about that recently. What do you think about that? Well, inventory in general, low inventory in particular, I think is Creates a, a bubble-proof
3: situation in the situation that, in the sense that um, low inventory means um, uh, great desire, it tends to lead to increased prices, and then lower inventory because those people are burning off that inventory and it's not being replaced at a rate that makes up for it. You know, over the last twelve years, fifteen years that I've been in real estate, I've noticed that there it's been a series of peaks and troughs. For instance, after nine eleven, I was, <clears throat> pardon me, I was running. Um, Corcoran's downtown operation at the time. And obviously, the market completely seized up. Nothing happened for months. And we were terrified, honestly, about our, our the future of our business. And then, as we all know, it started to loosen up uptown and then downtown caught up. And within six months, we were really kind of cooking again. And what I've noticed is, is that these series of peaks and, and, uh, and plateaus, I think is a better way of putting it, is it's not necessarily seasonally sensitive. But over the course of the last 10 years, we've seen this um, pattern repeat itself where inventory grows a little bit, activity is insane, and it drives prices up a little bit. It gets to the point oftentimes where the inventory is so low and competition is so tight that buyers opt out of the market. They say, no, I I don't think this is for me. I'll rent. I'll, I'll stay where I am. I'll renovate. Seeing a lot of that actually, yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. So that series of peaks and plateaus has been happening for 12 years. I think we're in a bit of a plateau. I think we we got to a situation in 13 certainly where inventory um burned off to such an extent that it it did I think it disincentivizes uh some buyers. It's dispiriting and it's dispiriting to brokers of course as well. Uh, but that's the pattern I've seen.
2: Yeah. And you know, the, the I look at numbers, you know, the other day and it's it apparently average price a million seven in Manhattan in the second quarter of this year. And obviously, as you just explained, I mean the, the the lack of inventory uh probably is driving this. But do you think it's also the new development condos that are out there, you know, kind of skewing the prices a bit? Because from my perspective, the you know, the buyers that, that I run around with from time to time, you know, when they see new development, it's almost as if they are willing to pay anything price wise for that particular apartment because it is brand new because it is uber luxury because it is you know everybody wants new so i think these prices get skewed because of that is that is that a fact i mean
3: at first, when it comes to average price, you know, an $80 million transaction is going to really throw your average sale price. Well, I price. wanted to ask you about that, yeah. Right. Okay. So, uh, for instance, at, at our firm, we we tend to um, segregate, segregate numbers. For instance, uh, a number of years ago when 15 Central Park West was on the market, those were really – those tra- closings were really throwing the west side market uh, in terms of averages and reporting. Absolutely. And that's not consumer friendly. The, the consumer isn't helped by that. So we actually separated them out to explain what effect – those closings we're having on the average. So in many ways, median price is more interesting to me than average. But, but to just take it from your, your question about new development, um, I think people do love new. Many people love new. But as we know, as uh, New York real estate brokers, many people love old. Many people love pre-war. In fact, I, as, when I was working actively as an agent, there were many buyers who simply said, please don't take, to me, take me to anything built post-19, you know, Fifty, right? Um, I think what is very attractive uh, about new development condominium is mm-hmm. is not just the newness, but the lifestyle. You know, with luxury right. amenities that that can really appeal to not just hyper luxury buyers. I'll, I'll use myself as, as an example. I live in a luxury midtown rental building. But those amenities are available to everyone, whether you're renting a studio in that building or a two-bedroom apartment in that building. So I think developers are very smart to recognize that when you, when you buy an apartment in a city like New York, you want to really come home to escape a little bit. And I think that they're offering the amenities that allow people to do that.
2: I agree. And, and I agree with, your, um, with what you said also. I happen to be a pre-war person. And although when I worked at Halstead, I worked at New Development for a bunch of years, five sure. or six years. And I sold you know, New Development. It you was know, a specialty, so I can sell it. Yeah, sure, <laughs> absolutely. I don't know that you're I a salesman. Yeah, but I don't know that I'd necessarily <laughs> want to live in it. But I get the amenities and I get the newness and I get the the feeling of luxury. Uh, you know, a lot of people, you know, feel like they want to live in that hotel kind of, you know, surrounding sure. an environment. So how, you know, with with all of this said, with the, with the markets, you know, peaking and, and, and not, how does Halstead as a company keep up with the current marketplace? You guys are big. You guys are all over the place. You know, you're in Connecticut. You're in Jersey, in the Hamptons. How is a company are you keeping up with the current marketplace? Because all markets are different. Exactly. exactly. So from a managerial pers- uh, you know, perspective, it must be kind of you know, difficult to keep up with it all.
3: Right. We're not running one market at Halstead. We're, we're involved in many markets. And even as I alluded to earlier, Manhattan has many markets. There are many micro markets within Manhattan. You know, I think that the philosophy at the firm is you know, go out, do good, do well for people Focus on customer service because when you focus on customer service, you're not only more likely to do a transaction in the short term, but as you know, Vince, our business is long ball. Absolutely. And and unless you are providing the kind of service to a buyer or to a seller that is going to engender future referrals and future business from that person, um, him or herself, then you're reinventing the wheel every time you you get out there with a customer. So- we focus on basics at the firm. We focus on uh, keeping uh, brokers motivated and excited and, um, and optimistic and, uh, and just push forward. It's that kind of business.
2: Yeah. I, I think sometimes do you come in, one day you wear the Hamptons hat, one day you wear the Connecticut hat, one day you oh, wear sure. the, the Manhattan hat. It's got to be very, you know, um, overwhelming if if anything else. But I I get the focus on customer service. Again, I worked at Halstead and I know the the type of philosophy and the firm it is. How many agents do you have currently uh, right now? Thousands. Thousands. About (laughs) 1,200 in three states. 1,200 in three states. states. My goodness. All right. Listen, we're going to take a break, but we'll be back right after these messages. You are listening to Good Morning New York on the Voice America Variety Channel. Don't go away.
1: Visit Blue Realty Group.com. That's BLU Realty Group.com. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Good Morning New York Real Estate with Vince Rocco. If you want to call into the program, we're toll-free in North America at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to vrocco at bluerealtygroup.com. That's vrocco at bluerealtygroup.com. Now, back to the show. All right,
2: everybody, we're back with Jim Greikar, president of Halstead Property Jim, so more than – again, some of the statistics I was looking at earlier uh, this week, more than half of the 2,500 new apartments slated to hit the market in Manhattan this fall will be geared to first-time and price-sensitive buyers. Who are these buyers, first-time buyers and, and price-sensitive buyers compared to everybody else? Well,
3: a first-time buyer is self-explanatory, someone who has never purchased and that's, a, that's actually an exciting customer to work with as an agent. I think that that can really be um, quite uh, gratifying. Um, In terms of uh, price sensitive, I think in a way it's self-defining as well. People who are looking for value and whose incomes and ability to carry an apartment require them to uh, purchase something uh, less expensive. That's a great thing in Manhattan and Brooklyn and all the boroughs actually because we do want to keep the vibrant um, mix that we have in this city. I certainly do.
2: What neighborhood is expanding the most um – Today, I mean, I, we've, we've seen so many transitions through the years. But what neighborhood right now today seems to be on the, the, the biggest move or the biggest change uh, in either Manhattan, Brooklyn, or, or, or any, anywhere in New York City?
3: In, in terms of resale sales, Vince, or in, in terms
2: of new development, new in, building? St- just sales in general. OK. So I guess
3: a combination of both. Sure. I'll answer it two ways. Sure. Um, the first one that comes to mind, of course, is Hudson Yards in the far west side. Mm-hmm. And what's interesting is, is that you know, they're, they're nearing completion on the first building. Which is not residential. It's a commercial building, I, I believe, primarily. Um, I, correct. And yet, even though those buildings have not been built and there's nothing for a buyer to buy yet, it is in, it is increasing the activity in Hell's Kitchen and certainly the prices. So I would say the far west side, um, it's, it's the obvious answer. It's going to be – uh, i believe 10 15 years of product and inventory coming onto the market and literally creating a neighborhood out of whole cloth
2: the hype behind that is amazing actually it's extraordinary because i agree with you i think it's going to be a few years 10 15 years of newness and mm-hmm. every time you turn around it's going to be something brand new there whether it's a rental building a, a, a condo building a commercial, commercial. A school it's going to be quite the quite the place to be but you know i can i can Use Hell's Kitchen as an example. You know, when I opened up the 505 uh, West 47th Street, I guess um, seven years ago already. Uh, and, you know, when people, when I told people I was going to be working in that location, everybody said to me, Are you crazy? Who was ever going to buy anything west of 10th Avenue? Right. And I kind of was a little bit doubting myself and said to some of the Hosted executives at the time, Really? I mean, west of 10th Avenue, this is kind of like, you know, I'm not so sure about this. I mean, flew off the shelf. And so look what's happened to that neighborhood. And we talked about Hell's Kitchen on this program about two weeks ago, maybe three weeks ago. It's just been an extraordinary, you know, uh, revitalization.
3: First of all, I think a healthy amount of self-doubt whenever you're pushing yourself in anything in business is good. Um, And I think you were ahead of the game, clearly. Um, That said, Hell's Kitchen is a neighborhood that has transformed itself, in my estimation, in the 25 years I've lived in New York. For instance, when I first visited New York, my sister was – uh, living in an apartment on 50th Street between 10th and 11th, that was a really, really difficult neighborhood. Absolutely. Um, she had she had great div- difficulty living there, being a single woman. She would come and go only during daylight hours, and it was a very different life. And I remember when I moved to New York in 1989, Eighth Avenue was about as far as you know you 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 wandered, and Thank not you. because of of the people who lived in Hell's Kitchen, but it was dark and. Rather underpopulated it 's a low rise neighborhood, as you know, so that transformation has been happening um, I think for years and it 's an exciting neighborhood
2: it 's an exciting neighborhood, and, and I find myself hanging there more for dinners and, and socializing with friends than anywhere else because there 's so much available in that neighborhood it, it, quickly let 's before we get into some of the agent profiles let 's talk about you know the statistic is more than half of the Manhattan homes purchased you know today in in this area are being bought in cash is is this really an all cash transaction or is it really a no financing contingency or a combination of both because you hear out there oh cash is king cash is going to win the deal how are your agents dealing with this because when you get into situations where we have you know uh, multiple offers bidding wars over asking price etc you know are the cash buyers really winning Cash is an overused term in the sense that, as
3: you point out, many people um, don't finance or they finance but don't make uh, the contract contingent upon the financing. Correct. And in many cases, people finance after the fact. Mm-hmm. In order to be competitive, they they close with cash and then they finance afterwards. Um, I think it's an interesting statistic. I think what it does is it speaks to how competitive a low inventory market will uh, will make buyers and – Every broker, every agent who's worked with a buyer has the cash non-contingent conversation with them by means of explaining that in order to be toward the top of the heap of a multiple bid situation, going cash or non-contingent allows the seller to exhale and – And in many cases, choose the highest number. So it's an instructive number. It's interesting. But I think it's a little flawed in the sense that we don't know when people finance after the fact, for instance. Um, We don't go back and record that. Our statistics are based on (coughs) what happens in the county clerk's office. And if if there's
2: financing at the time of closing, then it's indicated. And if there isn't, it isn't. It's interesting to see how this may or may not change going forward as the markets you know change you know oftentimes i 'm asked by my agents how um, they can best differentiate themselves among the many agents out there in this town to win that exclusive to get that new listing. What advice can you give all agents out there, including your own, you know who want to win and who want to be on top of the real estate industry in this town, as you and I were chatting off you know off uh, network here before. It's tough. You know, you've got to be in this game to really win it, and you've got to really focus on it 100%. You know, people sometimes come into the, this profession thinking that it's easy. What advice do you give people, you know, and, and how do you tell them that they can be number one or they can achieve these goals of being the top in their industry uh, in this, this town? I think, I think there's only one <laughs> way, and it
3: took me a few years to, to, to learn it. But, you know, first, I think you have to define what you're selling. In real estate, as an agent, I never thought of myself as selling apartments per se, certainly not by the traditional standard uh, definition of selling, talking someone into doing something. Right. I've never talked someone into parting with, you know, a million dollars, 75% of which is financed by a bank. Exactly. Um, I think the answer um, is in, in sales and service is almost always the same, which is you need to understand what your product is and your product is you because you're selling your services Over a long period of time, not in a short period of time. And the way – the best way to do that is to know yourself and to present the most authentic distilled version of yourself, whatever that is. Because as my late mother always used to say, there's a lid for every pot. (laughs) There is a buyer for every agent. There is an agent for every buyer. Absolutely. And I do think that when you try to model um, and try to be something that is not your comfortable self, it reads as an authentic – and although the buyer or seller, you asked about him, pitching a listing, doesn't necessarily consciously put that all together, they sense it. Um, the most successful agents in the bu- business, Vince, look around our business. I know you know this. Wildly different personality types. There's, no one, there's no one particular type that does well. So my advice always is know yourself and you know, be the best you know, person you can be and be authentic. And that usually works.
2: Authentic, absolutely. And, and, fo- and stay focused because this is a profession that can get you off kilter in a, a sneeze. It's Absolutely. So social media, you know, again, I worked at Halstead. So I know the great emphasis put on social media in your company. So have you found uh, any, has your agents found, you know, tremendous success in using these tools? I, for one, still subscribe to it in a big way. And I have found success in it. How, what is, what's Halstead looking at currently as far as a social media plan? What, what are your agents looking for? couple of questions there I would say the first thing is is that
3: um, in general oftentimes salespeople uh, are always looking for the thing that's going to solve everything mm-hmm. and and you know oftentimes um, that can lead you into a, a bit of a a chasing your tail sort of situation. I think the benefit of social media is that it, it exponentially extends your ability to touch people to contact people to communicate with people to demonstrate your services so when people say well Will I get listings from my Facebook page? I I answer generally no. Um, But your Facebook page becomes almost like your bio page on your website. Once you encounter someone, they're not going to find you on Facebook necessarily to list their apartment. But once they meet you, and uh, contemplate a transaction with you, then they're probably going to ch- check you out on Facebook if they are. So from a company standpoint, we have a very, as you know, a, a vibrant presence on all social media. We have a, a, a director of social media and web marketing, a fantastic guy named Matthew Leone, and he is always in front of everything. So, you know, he yeah, he's, he's amazing. So it's little things like making sure that your presence is beautiful and, and important. It's also, um, it's also things like, sorry, that's a big thing. It's also little things like, you know, we recently did did the ice bucket challenge and it was it was really fun it increases culture obviously increases your presence on social media will someone call you and say you did the the ice bucket challenge so i'm going to list my apartment with you no i don't think it follows that way it, it, but I do it, think it's hugely valuable.
2: It, it's very valuable. It doesn't necessarily, you know, uh, end in a listing per se for someone, but it shows that you've got heart, that you've got warmth, that you understand you're part of the community and part of customer service. You know, is all of the above. So, you know, those kinds of things I think go a long way. Let's talk briefly about Halstead's extension plan, uh, expansion plans. You know, you recently purchased a firm, Reaction International. What you know, you seem to be growing all over the place and uh, consistently. What what is the goal? At the, the end game for you guys, where do you want to be in three years? To keep growing.
3: <laughs> I mean the end game is to service as much clientele as possible and to, uh, to touch as many buyers and sellers as possible and to transact as much as possible. The reality too is, is that the Manhattan marketplace is an awfully crowded uh, mm-hmm. market as you know. And so what we've been doing is trying to look at where people are going or going to be going. Uh, for instance, we opened a recent – an office recently in Bedford-Stuyvesant. Now, Bed-Stuy is an amazing neighborhood. It has a housing stock that you can't believe. I, I believe the statistic is something like 8,000 pre-1900 freestanding houses. Unbelievable! It's the largest concentration of, of, of 19th century housing in America, yeah, I believe. Yeah. And because of the economic downturn, the, the, the horrible economic downturn that has happened, that happened in Bed-Stuy for decades – Many – most of those houses were left untouched. They were lived in as rentals but they weren't torn down and so now you have this amazing housing stock and people who say to themselves, I'd love to live in a house but I don't have $10 million to do it in the West Village. Everett Stuyvesant is an appealing – really appealing marketplace. So I would say that we try to be in front of the buyer or at least um, anticipate what the buyer is, um, is looking for, Long Island City. Fantastic, vibrant, growing neighborhood.
2: But I agree with Bed-Stuy. I showed out there um, earlier this year and I was amazed at the architecture and the housing stock. You're right. I mean it's it's very highly concentrated and probably the best anywhere. But no one thought that. No one thinks about that even probably still today until you get there and you start seeing what really is available. And the price differential is quite amazing. What do you make of these reality shows that seem to have captured and affected the New York marketplace? But my question to you is do you really think it has – Affected this more this real estate profession. There's so many different answers to this question. I'm curious to see how you feel about this. I'm, I'm
3: sort of holistic. Got two in, minutes left. I'm, I'm holistic in nature. I think everything affects everything. So my answer is yes, it, it okay. does affect it. It has certainly raised the profile of our business, but at the same time, it has in some ways diminished uh, perhaps uh, our perception in terms of, of of being professional service providers. I. It's entertainment. I, I think you know it's, it's, it's all good. Um, I, uh, I, I personally don't watch a lot of reality television. I'm more of a reader than a watcher. Um, and then when I watch I watch things like Walking Dead because I want to completely escape. So mm-hmm. when I want to escape into television, um, real estate reality shows are not – it's not my first choice.
2: No, but it's interesting though because you, you, you hear all of the stories and everybody knows the players' names and everybody knows the situation – and it's interesting and the reason I ask the questions is because people ask me all the time. And when you go on listing you know, pitches and stuff, you actually run up against some of these people and you know, sometimes you win, sometimes you lose. So it's really kind of interesting. So we've got about 30 seconds left. What's next for Jim? Jim Greikar at Halstead. Hopefully you'll be there for – Long time to come.
3: I've, you know, I've been with Terra, with the Terra company now for 11, almost 12 years. And I love working with Terra. I was at Brown Harris oh, Stevens, our right, sister yeah. company, yeah, for, right. uh, for seven years and now with Halstead. Uh, what's immediately next for me? I'm going to go get some breakfast. <laughs> um, but long term, I just me too. I look at it the same way that I looked at being an agent. It's long ball. I want to build a long career for myself, and um, and do it with people I like working with and like working for. And you know, sometimes I think we overanalyze things. I don't know if it
2: gets much better than that. You like your work, you like the people you work with. It's, to me, it's so simple. It, it doesn't get better than that, and I and I share that with you. I totally agree. Anyway, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Sorry, you know, we always have to cut these things short, but maybe you'll come back again. We will be back to. at. To these messages, you're listening to Good Morning New York on the Voice America uh, radio network. Don't go away.
1: Stimulating talk gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time, the number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. Visit Blue Realty Group.com. That's B L U Realty Group.com. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Good Morning New York Real Estate with Vince Rocco. If you want to call into the program, we're toll free in North America. At 1-866-472-5788, that's 1-866-472-5788, or send an email to vrocco at bluerealtygroup.com. That's vrocco at bluerealtygroup.com. Now, back to the show.
2: All right, everybody, we're back. Thank you to Jim greikar president of Hulset uh, Property, for dropping by the studio this morning. Always a pleasure to see Jim. Um, so now, now we want to switch to my panel. We're talking today to Deborah Hoffman from Town Residential, Parul Brombat from Core Group, Rachel Altshuler from Douglas Elliman, and Niall Lundgren from Dalian Real Estate. Good morning, everybody.
4: Good morning, Good morning ben.
2: So... You know, at the top of the show, I mentioned it takes a village to purchase or to go through a a purchase or even a, a leasing transaction here in New York City. The six main players you are likely to encounter and what you can and should expect when wanting to purchase an apartment in New York City, one, of course, is the real estate agent. Two is the lender or the mortgage broker or banker, depending on who you're working with. Three is the managing agent, and we need to talk a little bit about these people. Four is the appraiser. Five an inspector if you're buying a house, and sometimes people want an inspector even for an apartment uh, and six is the real estate attorney, so you know guys when you when you first meet and you know a lot of this is repetitive because we've talked about this before, but you know in this business of real estate as i've always said to keep our clients informed in the know just so they understand what is happening, how do you explain when you first meet let's let's start with a buyer. How you know, we have to go through this process? Again, you know, talking about these six key players, we could probably add two or three more, but for most of the deals, it is these six key players. The real estate agent, you know, some buyers prefer to work directly with the seller, seller's agent, meaning they don't need to have a, a representative on the buy side, and then some do. So how do we, you know, how do we explain our role to a prospective first-time uh, client of ours, buyer?
4: Well, Vince, I feel like uh, we are, first and foremost, um, uh, I, you know, recently in an article, Barbara Fox said this, and that is, you know, you can choose to just have the seller's broker represent you as a buyer, but really you're not getting represented as far as your interests are concerned. Um, so I think that the way in the Manhattan real estate market and the way it works, uh, a buyer's agent to me is almost like a free gift. Um, because really, it's the seller who's already signed a contract, and it is that commission from the sell side that gets split between the buyer and the seller's broker. Um, I personally find it to be imperative um, for my buyers in just about every transaction that they had, a rep- they were represent- they were represented, um, whether they are my buyers or even if I'm on the sell side. I really do think that uh, transactions go much more smoothly if if uh, the buyer has a broker involved, who is well-versed. And also, as a broker, we're not just the broker. There are these other players that come into into the whole transaction, um, and we are a great resource for the mortgage broker in order to provide a mortgage broker for our buyers, to provide an attorney, an inspector, um, so on and so forth. And really, a lot of times, it is when you have a solid team of people Um, who have all been in the market for a long time, who know, you know, the brokers and the other attorney on the sell side, etc., that you can really bring a transaction together seamlessly
2: let 's break that down a little bit well said peru but let 's break that down a little bit, so you know once we get past the the introduction or you know formal or informal you know with the with the real estate agent yes i 'm going to work with one no i 'm not you know the next The next step is you know making sure that these people are pre qualified before we even start looking for property because should you want to start putting offers in, we need to understand. You know, can you afford to do this? So, you know, whatever type of lender you go with, it's important to find one that understands, you know, my opinion, the, both the co-op and the condo market and the approval process. So how do you, you know, vet your buyers, you know, with regard to the lending part of this transaction? Do we ask up front? Are you working with a banker or a mortgage broker? Who, they, who are they? What financing institution are they from? And how do we coach them on that? I believe – I believe this is one of the more important aspects of working through a transaction. Comments on that?
5: The most important thing that I see is is when I I meet with somebody at the beginning is to flesh out all the different components. And being a buyer's broker, it's important to let the the buyer know that you're not necessarily there only to find them a listing. Because with StreetEasy, most of the listings are are generally very transparent. So our job that I like to say is is to play the quarterback and, you know, literally direct, okay, this is where you're going to go in terms of lending, this is where you're going to go in terms of attorneys, et cetera. So the lending aspect, you know, as I'm seeing a lot of the, the, the buyers that I'm working with moving towards all cash, um, I'm not seeing that as much. But when I do sit down with uh, folks who are looking to finance, that's very important. And, you know, I think it's really important to, to get a New York City-specific Banker or broker versus, you know, a, a bank in Montana because that's where they're from that they want to use that's not familiar with condos and co-ops that could potentially blow up the deal down the line. So it, it's important to, to work closely with your broker and, uh, so that they can give you recommendations on the right, the right banks, the right brokers to go to in order to, to actually secure financing to close on the deal.
2: Now, that's also well said, but you know, I have a comment because, and actually it's a question because I'm trying to sort this out myself. You know, when I first started in this business, mortgage brokers. Were all the rage, you know, not bankers, you know, not people who would work directly with one bank, Citibank, you know, Chase Bank, whatever. But there were mortgage brokers who sit in the middle of, you know, uh, an office, and they go out to many different banking relationships that they have to find the right product for you as the buyer. Then it switched; the, the, the trend started going to directly to bankers individuals working for a Citibank, a Chase Manhattan Bank, or whatever the bank was. Now, it seems to me, I think, it seems to me to be trending back to uh, the mortgage broker. Do you guys see that, or have you seen that? In in a couple of my last deals, I've noticed that the banker has been pushed aside, and we've got more brokerage happening Mm -hmm. here.
6: I do. I see that, um, actually, quite often lately. I agree with you, Vince. The Mortgage broker is really being pushed now to shop around, find the best rate, and typically I have very good relationships with different mortgage brokers and bankers in each bank. So when I meet a new buyer, as most good brokers do, they give you a few recommendations because you just don't want to give one, and then it's up to them to find the one that they feel comfortable working with and can get the best rate. And recently I had an experience with one of my mortgage or actually, he's a mortgage broker, he came to me and said, I have this girl, she doesn't want to work with a buyer's broker, you guys will love this story, he's like, "But I really want her to work with you, she just doesn't get it, so I'm going to push her 75 points and I will let her know why to work with a buyer's broker, so we created this sheet of like why you should work with a buyer's broker, including that time is valuable, um, the Manhattan and Brooklyn markets are quite competitive. You need a seasoned guide to compile your board packages and condo applications. Um, you have access to the best of the best. Um, some of the other points were longstanding broker-to-broker relationships, which we've discussed on the show before, help to assure that you will be the first one into a property. Um, and after all these points were sent to her, she started working with me and after said, I can't believe I didn't want to work with a buyer's broker. And she got it after the fact, which I thought was really interesting. <laughs>
2: Seriously. Um, We've got a a minute or two before we go to break. I want to just touch quickly on the managing agent because although they often are overlooked, one of the key players in this transaction is the building's managing agent. Now, the buyer needs information from them. The real estate uh, broker needs information from them. The mortgage banker or broker and attorneys need information from managing agents. How do you explain to your buyers or actually how do you work with managing agents? Uh, because it's, it's a tough situation sometimes to get through to them because uh, they're all so busy and they, they manage multiple buildings. But it is a key portion of this um, uh, equation. But I'm being told we have to go to break on the other side of this break. We'll come back and we'll finish up with managing agents. Don't go away.
1: visit blue realty Group.com. that's b l u realty Group.com. stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast all the time the number 1 internet talk station where your opinion counts voiceamerica.com you are listening to good morning new york real estate with vince rocco
2: All right, everybody, we're back with Deborah Hoffman, Parul Brombat, Rachel Altshuler, and Nell Lundgren. So we left off on managing agents, and I just wanted to quickly get your opinion on uh, the the value of the managing agent, because as I said before break, everybody, uh, a part of this in the transaction, has to deal with them. Why is this so important? Well,
4: Vince, I mean, I think that the managing agent is probably one of the most underrated or under understood if, if that's, I guess, misunderstood would be the right word. Um, uh, party, I think, in all of this, um, because they really do hold quite a bit of power um, in the sense that really it's up to them when things are going to get done. If they take a while to turn uh, things around, whether it is that uh, you're doing a co-op deal and the attorney needs uh, meeting minutes uh, and financials, or if it is, after you've had a signed contract and that the managing agent is now going over the application and either then sending it to the condo or the co-op board, uh, so managing that relationship in my experience has been the thing that has taken the longest. Like it's been, it, it's just a a long-term buildup. up um, I think one of the most important things that I've found is just showing them appreciation um, because whenever there's a transaction that finishes. I will always send them either a gift certificate or flowers or something of the sort. And over the course of, I guess it's been now nine years since I've been in the business, um, It's they start recognizing you. They know who you are. And then there are times when this one time, I mean, I had a rental that I was doing in a condo building. And um, due to just many different factors and the difficult owner, uh, things were just all over the place. And my renter needed to move into the apartment um, and she was a high-profile person, needed the apartment within, turned around in five days. I mean, literally, we put in an application, she needed to be in five days later. And because of that built relationship, because of the appreciation I had shown over the years, I could pick up the phone, call the managing agent and say, hey, listen, I'm just asking you for a big favor. I need this done as soon as possible. And she literally got it done the next day for me. So it is one of the most valuable and underrated relationships for sure. And our listeners
6: should understand, maybe if they're not in New York, that this process can typically take 30 to 45 days. Or sometimes (laughs) even longer,
2: unfortunately. So Mm -hmm. uh, good good comments on the managing agent, and we do really have to emphasize the fact that, you know, without that little catalyst in the middle of this transaction, we wouldn't uh, successfully conclude a transaction. The appraiser, now, you know, the appraiser is an interesting uh, piece of this whole puzzle. The, they're an important character in the process of buying a New York City apartment, but he or she is chosen by a lender uh, and neither the buyer nor the seller has any say in it. So my question basically is, you know, we've all been through good appraisals, bad appraisals, you know, periods of time where appraisals were just a normal course of whatever to a point where... Every appraisal came in under asking price, under this, under that. Now things got better. But I'm starting to see all of a sudden where appraisals, they're not slam dunks yet again. And you know, for whatever reason, the tide might be turning there. What do you guys see in your business? I've seen this now three times in the last month. What do you guys see in this, uh, in this or, or how do you explain what may be changing on the appraiser side? Well, a lot
0: of the problem is, as you said, the banks hire the appraisers, and just like all of us are licensed to sell real estate in all of New York State, yet we concentrate on Manhattan and those areas, many times the banks will hire the least expensive appraiser they could find. So we could have appraisers coming in from Suffolk County, from Albany, as I've had happen, and they don't understand the value of outdoor space, of air rights, of views, of things like that. And that's what's so difficult.
2: Deborah, how important are comps when you when you when you're meeting an appraiser? How important are comps? Because what you just said is key. They don't always understand because they don't live in Manhattan or have an appreciation of the housing stock that we deal with in Manhattan. How do you deal with an appraiser when you do have outdoor space and you do have roof access or you have whatever? Comps, I believe, are you know uh, extremely valuable and extremely important. But sometimes you can't get a comp for what you need. I mean, what 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 goes on with this?
0: Well, I actually had a problem a few months ago where we had a private sale in a building which was so below market, it was scary. And I got a letter from the managing agent, again, as Perul said, having relationships with managing agent, explaining why it was such a low sale. It was a hoarder and an estate and all this stuff. But I gave that to the appraiser and they took that into consideration that this wasn't really a comp. So I would guess that... Sometimes you could do something similar with outdoor space in a similar building.
2: Being creative. Let's move mm-hmm. to the poor door controversy. New York City moved just a little bit closer to an all-out class warfare recently when the develop, uh, Department rather, of Housing and Preservation and Development approved a plan for the Upper West Side condo building with a separate door for the poorer people who are being allowed to live there. Extel Corporation, uh, the company uh, who's building this 33-story luxury complex at 50 Riverside Boulevard, proposed the controversial arrangement last year as part of its application for the inclusionary housing program, which gives developers tax credits credits, and other perks in exchange for creating some affordable units along with their less affordable ones. When this building is completed, it will house 219 expensive river-facing condos and 55 street-facing units at the back of the building – all of this uh, resulting in separate entr- entrances to the building. You know, why is this causing such fury uh, these days? I mean, this is something that we never really heard of. Uh, all of a sudden, it's a controversy. Why?
0: Slow news day? <laughs> <laughs> I really thought yeah. that when I first heard it I mean, it should be going it on forever. Be only-
2: Right. It should be that. But I mean, seriously, though, because people are getting up on arms. Let me just read you something that I said. One critic said, and quote, you know, the show Downton Abbey, the servants have to come in and go through separate entrances and bow their heads when they enter and see a noble well. There could soon be a version right here on the Upper West Side. I mean, I think that's nonsense. I mean, it's crazy. Wow, it's-
4: that is dramatic is all I can say.
2: <laughs> it's totally dramatic. You know, but, yeah. but here but here's something else though. Tenants on the on the poor door side, and I, I can't even say these words because it makes me so furious, but tenants on the poor door side are not allowed to use any of the facilities. I mean so one would say, is this right?
4: Vince, you know, I'm the one who generally tends to be the one who sounds like I want to hold hands and sing Kumbaya all the time. Um and I have to say, like, I saw that article and I was I mean, I just thought it was a very dramatic article that you know was just trying to make a mountain out of something that is that is so much more understandable when we look at the fact that everywhere in the country people choose what neighborhood they want to live in, and the neighborhood i mean obviously, like all the homes are in like value, so on and so forth. Now, we live in a city we should absolutely have housing available for people of all walks of life, that's what makes the city so diverse and wonderful. However, um, to expect there to not be a difference in the amenity level or even just having multiple entrances. And, you know, and here, I'll give you an example. It's not even about whether it's poor or rich. Uh, there's a, a brand-new development in Bro- downtown Brooklyn, 388 Bridge Street, that I was just at this weekend with my buyers, and they loved the views from the condo units that are at the top of the building, and the rest of the building is normal market value rental. And they decided to pass on that building because of the fact that there's one entrance for all the rental units and the condo units upstairs, and it had nothing to do with money because the same sort of demographic of people will be living in the building more or less. However, it was just the amount of traffic. It was also the fact that when somebody buys a home, they want to feel like they have their own sense of community and neighborhood within that, and they just didn't find the value there. When it, if you live by a condo, but you still feel like you're living in a massive rental building, what's the point? So really, I think that they're making an issue of something that, I mean, is overblown, frankly, in my opinion.
2: I, I agree. But, you know, it always comes down to, you know, the developers are wanting the tax abatement offered by the city so they can pass that tax break on to purchasers on the high end of the apartment side. You know, when they use the term poor door, I get offended because it's, I don't think it's anything but. The, this is this is part of the affordable housing in New York and in this particular case in Manhattan. And so be it. It it, it should be, you know, but without a full tax assessment, you know, on, on, on the other side of the building, you know um, – who knows how many people would be able to buy those apartments? Because I believe firmly, and being a, a, an agent who sold on site in new developments for many years, you know, um, tax breaks help sell these units. So we have to understand, I, I think, the full picture. I agree with you, Parul, that it's, you know, it's an over dramatic, completely blown out of proportion story. But I got to tell you something. You know, over a week or two, it seems like everything that passed my desk had something to do with this poor door. Controversy. In fact, when I I mentioned it earlier, when Jim was still in the studio, he kind of smiled and and kind of shrugged the same way. Like, really? I mean, this this is still being talked about because it's nuts. But again, I think it goes back to Mr. de Blasio's plan to require affordable units in new projects in exchange for bigger buildings. And it's a major departure from the Bloomberg years when these actions were really kind of voluntary. Uh, But how far the city will push developers will not be determined until after a study by the planning department and the new policy would not come into effect until at least the middle of next year. Mr. de Blasio also wants new units to be available to more households with extremely low incomes, under about $25,000 a year for a family of four, that he feels have been left out of qualifying for apartments in the past. City, state, and federal money is needed to both spur development deals for new affordable units and maintain existing affordable apartments. Housing data shows that nearly a third of the city's households who rent pay over 50% of their income in rent and utilities well above 30% uh, federal standard of affordability. So I think what the mayor is trying to do is unleash some affordable housing. And again, you know, I sit here and I read the controversy and all this nonsense. Why should it matter? And, and you know, why should it make a difference if two uh, levels of income, uh, for lack of a better way of putting it, are living in the same building? I think – It should be fine. Any other comments on the poor door? I mean, have you guys seen anything? I mean, I did have a client, you know, who I was looking to sell an apartment to at 50 Riverside Boulevard. And, you know, they were concerned about the two doors. Smart because they're smart people. Uh, It turned out to be nothing. And they realized, okay, this is not a big deal. uh, And we went forward with the purchase. But I got to tell you something. it's, it's, It's these kinds of stories that really make, you know, the world of real estate... Uh, crazy. Next week we're going to uh, have a fascinating show. Do you have a net worth of five million dollars, or a house worth more than one point five million dollars, an average income of more than two hundred fifty thousand dollars, and an affinity for bargain hunting? If you answered yes, then aside from being extremely lucky, you're just the reader for Dujour, a digital print magazine. In the summer of two thousand and two, Jason Bin founded Dujour. Media Group, LLC, publisher of DeJure Magazine, a digital and print magazine distributed monthly across the United States. This publication targets the affluent market and chronicles the world of the nation's wealthiest individuals. I'm looking forward to meeting with Jason next week here in the studio. So again, until next time, thank you for joining me. I look forward to being uh, with you next Tuesday morning at 9 a.m. Eastern, 6 a.m. Pacific Time, live on the Variety Channel here on the Voice America Network. You can always catch the show later in the day or on podcasts anytime on our website, voiceamerica.com. Always my pleasure, guys. Have a great week, and I'll talk to you soon.
1: Thanks for tuning in this week. Please join us for another edition of Good Morning New York Real Estate with Vince Rocco next Tuesday at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Here's hoping all of your transactions are successful ones.